several passages of scripture uh, to share with you tonight. Uh, if you want to go to 1 Thessalonians uh, first, uh, it's been kind of on my heart uh, with Cameron's passing and then obviously uh, Brother Jerry sort of unexpectedly. Uh, really, this has been counting John Howard as well. There's been like four, four deaths uh, really in the last two weeks. Um, and, and so most of these people outside of Cameron, we, I did know Ashley and remember her and certainly Betty, uh, but we knew, I knew these people. Uh, and no matter, uh, no matter how much we have confidence in their whereabouts in regards to their relationship with Christ, uh, it leaves holes in our hearts, and especially in our families and people that we love. And, and sometimes it just does good to reorient ourselves and find out why it is that we can endure uh, difficult times like that. In 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, Paul writes this, and you hear this a lot in funeral texts, but he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. He means dead. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now I'm going to come back to that. Verse 14, I'll come back to these at the end of the message. But for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so essentially he begins here by reminding us um, that we do grieve. Uh, when we lose someone we love, there's... Uh, a place, a void in our lives that really can't be filled by anyone. Uh, you know, you can have other relationships and, and find those to be very fruitful and blessing and all those. Uh, but nobody replaces the, the one who left the void uh, because there's no one uniquely made like that person. So, uh, so the Christian grieves, and I think grieve is proper. But Paul is reminding us that we grieve uh, in a very different way than the world grieves. Uh, we grieve with hope. And that's a pretty, a pretty significant uh, issue there. In fact, nothing really illuminates the divine origin of a Christian's hope like death. Uh, that's, where, that's where you find out what the hope is. That's where you find out how real it is. Uh, that's where you find out how stable it is. Uh, we can go through our lives with this sort of hope, sort of a vague kind of hope and optimism for the future, but uh, it is the darkness of death. And, and by the way, it's never pretty. Uh, I've never witnessed a pretty death. Uh, there have been many who've gone on in peace to be with the Lord, and I'm thankful for that. But the, but the process of death is not something that we, uh, that we ought to want to embrace. It's in the world because it's a curse. It's part of the curse. And so uh, we don't rejoice uh, over the curse. Death is ugly. And it hurts. It hurts us because it's ugly. The world, in regards to their hope, the world, sensing, I think, the finality of death, is really quick to imagine or to manufacture some end endless variety of romanticized schemes of life continuing after death. However, these only provide a small and temporary comfort to the living as they, can, as they complete, contemplate their own end. These false hopes offer no help to the deceased at all, simply because they are false. Uh, 
It's amazing to me sometimes you see some of the stuff and uh, even nowadays the trends in, in what people are doing, marking the death of someone. And um, I know they, I saw a, I saw it's been years ago, but some sort of burial, burial place out in California where there are no, no markers. It's just a beautiful meadow and they bury the uh, uh, ashes, it's all cremation, they bury the ashes of those in some undisclosed, uh, unmarked place and they give you a GPS point to where you can go out in the cemetery and get your GPS on your phone and it'll take you right to where your loved one is buried, but no markers at all, it's just a meadow. And you, and you hear all kinds of kind of strange ways of marking the end of a life and, and these romanticized views of what goes on. Anybody ever seen, uh, I don't recommend it, but I, I remember watching Forrest Gump. And, and it's amazing to me because that's not a comedy, by the way. Uh, if you watched that and you thought it was a comedy, you missed the whole point. Uh, it is quite profound. But at the very beginning and at the end, uh, it begins with this feather floating down and it lands on the shoe. And then it shows the entire life of him unfolding. And then at the very end, the feather come, is laying on the shoe as this little boy gets on the bus and drives to school. And the wind blows and there goes the feather again. Uh, there's a message communicated there. There's a romanticized view that life is precious to me. So, so it must go on in some way. And so they imagine all sorts of warm, comfy, comfortable things to encourage people by. But, but when death comes, if it's not true, it does the deceased no good. The living may take some temporary comfort in it, but it does no good to the dead because it's not a real hope. That's really what I want to share tonight, just the reorienting us to that as well. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians first, uh, to chapter 15. As I say, you'll recognize every one of these texts uh, from funerals if you've been to quite a few funerals. So I'm getting at in this passage that there is, there is something true undergirding our hope. It's not, it's not a romanticized view. It's not an imaginary thing. It's not a manufactured hope. Uh, there is undergirding our hope is truth. If it's not true, then it's no hope. And to me, the cruelest thing you can do is offer someone a hope that's not true. And that's what we're looking at. In chapter 15, the first of these, the ground of this hope, the truths of this hope is that they are involving the death of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3 through 8. Paul says here, for I delivered to you this, this phrase as of first importance. This is priority. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And that is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So in verse 3 there, the truth undergirding the Christian's hope in the darkness of death is the reality that Christ died. And so you're not, death does not introduce us into some realm that Christ doesn't know, first and foremost. He knows death. He knows suffering. He knows, as I was sharing recently, he knows hunger and thirst and sorrow. 
He walked in the fullness of his humanity. And if we're all facing death, Christ, part of the ground of our hope is that Christ himself tasted death, what's ahead of us. He tasted death. And so death is real. If Jesus is alive, he goes on to say, if Jesus is alive today, after having died, then there must be some possibility that there is some life after death. Only in Jesus, but Jesus died. Not only did he die, but verse 3, he died very specifically for a very specific reason, and that is our sins. That's undergirding our hope. There is no hope if Jesus just dies, even if he rises again, if he doesn't die for our sins. There is no hope hope if he doesn't die for that reason not for us anyway so this is the these are the truths that are undergirding our hope in verse 3 i thought think part of the truth as well is the is the divine authority of scripture because both in verse 3 and then following he mentioned verse 4 he says according to the scriptures in verse 3 and again in verse 4 to conclusion of verse 4, according to the scripture. So we have a divinely given authoritative source that tells us that Jesus not only lived, but that he died, but that he died very specifically for our sins. And he goes on in verse 4, and he was raised from the dead. And so our authority, our, the authority for our hope is the scripture's because God has breathed those out uh, authoritatively to teach us the truth. And so if you dismiss this, then you have no authoritative witness of any other claims you may make about Jesus, about his death and about his resurrection even. You learn that from the scriptures. So there is no hope if you want to abandon the authority of scriptures because the scriptures are the only authoritative source that gives you a hope or tells you what that hope is. So undergirding our truth is the scriptures by which we learn the other truths that Christ died and that he died for our sins. And then in verse four, he was buried and raised from the dead, living after having been dead. And so that's, a, that's the truth undergirding our hope. That Jesus lived after he died. So if I'm in the midst of death, whether it's myself or in the darkness and the ugliness of observing and, and standing by as someone I love dies, then my foundation of my hope in that moment is they can live again. They live again. In fact, according to John... He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. So in a very real sense, even in the darkness of death, those who are in Christ and alive are not dying at all. They've already died. And so something different is happening to the fleshly body. And, and it reflects all the ugliness of death in the putting off of the fleshly body. But the believer who believes in his living shall never die. That's different. That's a, that's a hope. Not only was he buried and raised, but in verses 5 through 8, he goes through the apostles, James and John, and ultimately to Paul himself. But he confirmed by his appearing that he was alive. 
He didn't, he didn't just rise from the dead in some obscure place and ascend to the Father and then send us a, a, a Bible that says he, he rose again. Yes, he rose again, but then he confirmed he was alive uh, to many to many throughout uh, before he ascended to the Father. He mentions the apostle and, and to many there. He appeared to Cephas, verse 5, and the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom were alive at the writing of this, although some had fallen asleep. Verse 7, he appeared to James, then all, to all the apostles. And last, last of all, Paul says, to, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. You remember Paul encountered him on the Damascus road. And it was Jesus, the risen Jesus, who said, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? I'm goading you. I'm, I'm goading you, but you're bucking the goads. Why don't you yield to the goads? The pricks, I think the King James Version uses it. These are, this is the source or the truth undergirding our hope. And so those who are here tonight, Cheryl and and you guys and, and Lib's family and church members who love these people, those who knew John Howard and all these who were Christians, our hope in the midst of that is not a, a vague, it's not an indiscriminate, it is a real hope. It's, it's grounded in reality, not in feeling. Lost people have feelings about life continuing and they muster up some warm cozies in regards to the future of their loved one, even if they were outside of Christ. But that's a lie. There is no good outcome for those outside of Christ. If we lose a loved one, no matter how much we love them, and they're outside of Christ, there is no hope for them. They will live on, yes. But under the condemnation and the fullness of the judgment of God Almighty, Throughout all eternity. That's not hopeful. But when we lose those who believe. We have a real. True. Grounded hope. I love it. Paul says uh, later on. And and we'll go to this in 2 Corinthians. That uh, we walk by faith. In regards to that. Uh, If you just go by sight. As I've already said. Death is not pretty. Uh, it's harsh and it's, it's cruel, it looks like, and it's cold and it's eerie. <laughs> There's nothing attractive about the dying and the putting off of the flesh. And if you don't have this hope, then all you have is your senses. Uh, I've told the story before. God stuck a stake in my heart at 14 years old as I watched the ugliness of death take over my grandfather's countenance. And I watched them there with the open casket throughout the service and the visitation. And then the funeral directors came forward and they began to shut the lid. And I watched the dark shadow cast across my grandpa's face. I remember as a 14-year-old, I could have swore he moved. I could have swore he moved. I'd been watching my grandfather move all of my life. And my mind was convincing me that he's in the casket, but I saw him move. He's not dead. Until I watched the shadow come across in the casket seal and I knew my grandfather's body was no longer going to be with us. And the Lord drove a stake deep in my heart in that moment and it was this question, now what? What's to be with my grandfather whom I love dearly? 
what happens to him now and what happens to me because my day's coming too well that's a time when you've got to have truth undergirding you I don't know about you but I am tired up to here of the lies of the world because everyone I have ever believed fell far short when it came to crisis time and you couldn't stand on it it let me down and so I don't want to hear any more of the world's lies. I don't want to hear fantasies about turning into stardust and traveling through the universe. I don't want to hear wishy-washy, dreamy, pagan ideologies. I want truth when it gets dark, right? That's what we want. That's the ground of our hope. Verse 12 through 19 of this passage as well is interesting because he gives us the flip side. If this is not true, then what? Verse 12, beginning in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, the implication is someone believes he's been raised from the dead and that's what they're preaching. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how is it that some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? They had disregarded the principle of it. Uh, the Sadducees primarily, uh, they didn't believe the principle of rising after one is dead. There is no resurrection. There may be some afterlife, but there's no resurrection of the body. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead... As a principle, then not even Christ is raised from the dead. Because you've ruled out the possibility. You said that's not possible. And those are, who are preaching that he rose from the dead, if it's not possible, then he didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have died or fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In fact, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's a stunning statement. If you just list those out, here's the implications. If this is not true, there is no hope. Number one, there would not be anything, if it's not true, then a resurrection isn't possible. The implications in regards to the resurrection of Christ. In other words, if he's not raised from the dead, then neither will you be. There is no, there is no hope of living after death in, in life or the resurrection of the body. You're, you're hopeless because if Christ is not raised, then you're not going to be raised. Because the principle of resurrection is obviously false. Secondly, verse 14, and this is critical, but preaching, and I would say all preaching, is futility. That's what he says here. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is vain. Vain meaning empty, futile. If this is not true, then 
What you've listened to, what I've devoted my life to, what men have done in pulpits for generations after generations since the time of Christ is an exercise in futility. And those men have done nothing more than boosted themselves up in pride and arrogance and went to their graves patting themselves on the back as though they had done something for God. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, that's futility. You're wasting your time here tonight. If that's not true, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, you should have you should have stayed home and watched the ball game. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, you should just kick back in your recliner, have a nice supper and take you a good evening nap. Because what you're doing now is utter futility. What you're listening to now, if Jesus is not risen from the dead. Not only is that preaching vain, but in verse 14 as well, he says, your faith, your faith is empty. Futility, vain. He goes further than that in verse 17 to say it's worthless. Worthless. All that you're fighting for and struggling for and all that you're dying to self to take hold of and this conviction and this belief in Jesus Christ. If he's not risen from the dead, that is futility for you and it's worthless. It's not going to gain you anything. See, See, that's, that's, what, that's what it is to be without hope. If this is not true, if what you've given your life to, this Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the redemption of sinners and the promise of an inheritance of an eternal life, if that's not true, then we are deluding ourselves and everything you and I are exercising and calling faith is futility and vain. Vain, empty. In fact, Paul says of himself, he could mean the prophets, but even us today who are testifying of Christ's resurrection, if he's not risen from the dead, then we are all found as to be false witnesses against God. Because we said God did raise him from the dead. If he's not risen from the dead, then you're bearing false witness against God. All you preachers, all you prophets, all you Christians from that day until this day that have been running around on Easter Sunday saying that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. If he's not, you're guilty of bearing false witness, not just against another man, but against God. If he's not risen from the dead. I mean, these men laid down their lives for this gospel of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. They went into the Colosseum sewn inside animal carcass and were ripped to pieces by lions for this reality of Jesus risen from the dead. But if he's not, all that's a waste. All that was a waste. In verse 17, most frighteningly, if he's not risen from the dead, you and I are still in our sins. In which case... We won't experience a resurrection like Christ experienced. We will experience an ongoing life in condemnation, but our sins will not provide for the resurrection to life. If he's not risen from the dead, he hadn't done away with your sin. And if your sin's not gone, you don't, you're not going to experience a resurrection unto life, but a resurrection unto judgment. Verse 18 this should strike us all, but if he's not risen from the dead, guess what? All those that we love who, who, per, who died have perished. There's not going to be a resurrection for them. You saw them your last. 
you said your goodbyes, you clothed the casket, you put that body in the ground, and if there's no resurrection, that's the last you'll see of that loved one. It's the last you'll see of it. And when you're put in that box and you go back to the dust, that's the last your loved ones will see of you if there's no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead. In fact, verse 19, I've always been struck by this. because, And the reason I have is because I've heard people say this, and you may have said this. Even if, there was, even if it wasn't true, the Christian life would be the way to live. I think you'd be happier if you just lived the Christian life. I, I beg to differ. Paul disagrees with you. If in this life only you have hoped in Christ, you are the most to be pitied. Because you have deceived yourself hoping in Christ throughout this life as though there's something beyond this life. And even if you want to live a Christian life according to the Bible and have a happy, prosperous life, at the end of it all, there's only condemnation and judgment upon you for eternity. You are the most to be pitied. You are the most to be pitied because you thought there was something better at the other end. If he's not risen from the dead, there isn't. Because the good life and the bad life both end in the same place in the grave with no resurrection. That's what he's saying here. If Christ is not risen from the dead. So that's what's at stake here. In the darkness of death. and the ugliness of death. There better be something real. And something true. Underneath your feet. Because if that's not. Then that's, this is the possibility. If it's not true. These are the, this is the emptiness and the futility and the sorrow. I'll be honest with you. If this is not true, I, I've been there and I would be there again. I couldn't live another day in this world. Because I would be, it would be such, such vanity and such futility that I would think to myself, what's the point? What is the point? Just end it. I don't know what kind of divine cosmic games happening here, but if this is all futility and a dream, let's just do, do away with it now. If this is not true. That's what he's, this is what's in the balance here. But I love verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. In other words, all these things that would be were it not for the resurrection of Christ have been affirmed as not going to happen because Christ is risen from the dead. Paul knew it firsthand. And all these witnesses that he just mentioned experienced this Christ risen from the dead. So it is true. So you can look into the ugly and dark and strained face of death as it washes over those whom we love and renders them husk. You can look at that and you can find strength because you're standing on something that is true and real. Just because you have embraced it by faith doesn't make it less real. It is more real, in, in fact, because that faith that you embrace it by itself is a gift of God. Now turn with me to, to 2 Corinthians 4. I don't know why it is, but I always wind up in 2 Corinthians 4. 
wherever I go in the scriptures. So I'm answering here, okay, it's true. So how does it benefit me? How does the resurrection of Christ benefit me? And in verses 1 through 7 essentially is a call to the gospel. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. I, I might make application there. The imaginary things, the romanticized views, the, we've dismissed these things. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, which is this gospel of life, even if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And we, you hear me say this all the time, who, who are perishing. Well, those whom the God of this world has blinded their minds and the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So one through seven, essentially, for we do not, Paul says, preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the, please don't look past these words and the previous words, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, so God shines in the heart to give us light. Light, what, what kind of light? Well, the light of the glory of the, the glory of God in the face of Christ. To be able to see that, that's a divinely given knowledge. And this is, our, this is how we benefit from the resurrection. Because through the resurrection, this is made possible for you and I who have believed. Whether we would describe it this way or not, before you believed, you were one of those whose the God of this world had blinded your mind so that you could... You could celebrate Christmas and Easter all you wanted to, but you, never, you didn't see something critical about Jesus, and that is the glory of God in him. You, you, you looked at Jesus, and you didn't see who he was. You didn't see the display and the manifestation of the glory of God in this person, Christ. And you couldn't have seen it, because the God of this world had blinded your minds to understand it, but... The same God who spoke into existence that which was not in the beginning, namely light, spoke in the same way in your hearts. In other words, there was no light in your heart at all. So this God who commands the light speaks into the heart, brings light into the heart, brings this illumination that rolls the veil back and now you see Christ as he ought to be seen. That's the divine work of God. And we don't benefit from that work apart from the resurrection of Christ because there wouldn't be mercy for God to do that and deserve sinners deserving condemnation and justice. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Uh, I've said this to many families, but there's nothing 
There's nothing like the body's, the, the spirit's departure from the body. Uh, there's nothing, there's never a moment in my life to where the body is more of a vessel than at that moment. It really is a tent. It was just a, it was just a house, and this goes on later, uh, this earthly tent, chapter 5 says, because once that spirit, the essence of who that is, is departing that body, it's just a body. It's just a tent. It's just a vessel. Well, Paul says this glorious glory of God in the face of Christ is such a treasure, such a treasure. And where does God put his treasure? In a bunch of broken pots. Uh, that's what he says here. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why is that? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Uh, I've said this before, but as a believer, do you know you have a treasure in you? Uh, I mean a real treasure. And that treasure is the, is the spirit of God Almighty speaking light into your heart in a way that illuminates for you the glories of Christ. That's a treasure. That's a treasure. And it dwells within the vessels of his choosing. Verse 8 so there's sustaining grace in verses 7 through 12, really. Listen to what he says here. Such, such is this treasure that it produces this effect. We are afflicted, he says, in every way. We are afflicted in every way. But we're not crushed. Listen to the contract. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Always, he says, carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. That's what, that's what the treasure does. It, it, it keeps you from being, if you look through this and read it this way, it keeps you from being crushed, despairing, forsaken, and destroyed. That's what the treasure in you prevents. Even when you're being afflicted, persecuted, and, and attacked in every way, literally caring about the dying of the body of Christ in your own fleshly body, even then, this treasure is sustaining you. That's grace. That's grace. I love it, Paul says in verse 12. So he's speaking of themselves here, but he says, So death, death's working in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing this, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. The same glory that they were seeing in Christ. So, so. So captivating was that glory that all they did was for the same glory. And this is what I want to close with these thoughts. Therefore, this is for us. Therefore, we, he says, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. This is because what the resurrection of Christ is true. It's real. So as a result, I don't lose heart, even in the darkest and the shadows of death, I don't lose heart. And I know, 
If you're young, you don't know this yet, but as you get older, you're going to know this body is decaying. The outer man is decaying day by day by day by day. And we already know its, it's outcome. Dust. Dust. In fact, I've said this before, but you ever wondered why the Lord had Moses take his sandals off his feet when he came into the presence of the Lord? I think it was more than just a signal of reverence. I think he wanted Moses in the presence of God to feel his dustiness. Take your shoes off, Moses, because in my presence, there's nothing separating you from the dust. Feel the dirt between your toes, Moses, because that's where you, that's where man is, is returning to, and that's where I brought him up from. That's the one in whose presence you are. So take off your shoes, Moses, and remember, you are but dust, and I made into the dust a man and redeemed him. So therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So it's essential to the gospel. We have sustaining grace. We do not lose heart. We're being renewed in the inner man day by day. And listen to this perspective on suffering that it produces as well. Because he says, for momentary light affliction. Momentary light affliction. You and I could probably say that with some validity. But Paul had a lot of affliction and it wasn't just momentary. And so have many of the Christian martyrs down through the ages. It was plentiful, frequent, and intense. But yet here he says it's momentary. Momentary and light. Well, why? Because of the truth and the treasure that's within us. You see, because this is true, it gives us perspective on our suffering. It's momentary, right, if you have an eternal perspective. It's momentary, even if it lasts a lifetime. I, I think of people often that are born uh, with difficulties and challenges, and they live all their lives, and sometimes not too many years, but even 50, 60, 70 years with those challenges, physical, emotional, mental, or whatever they may be. And, and I think to myself sometimes, how long and, and tragic of a life. But from an eternity's perspective, that's just a whisper. It's, it's short. And for some of these, I think they belong from God from the beginning. And he's just planted in their heart an, an optimism that looks beyond this life for the joy set before them. They endure that suffering. You see, when you have this truth and you have this spirit of God dwelling within, it changes your perspective on your affliction. I don't want to get cancer tomorrow or the next day, but if I'm diagnosed with it and I linger in a battle with cancer for five years and I'm miserable all the way, it's momentary. It's momentary. And in comparison to the suffering and the affliction that I've been delivered from in Christ Jesus, it's light. It's light affliction. Because in Christ, your affliction would have been eternity and it would have been intense outside of Christ. But in Christ, even the hardest and the harshest suffering in this life is only temporary and it's only light in comparison and is earning or producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I, I won't, I, I know my time's up, but it changes, it gives us a view of eternal things here. 
It causes us to be awaiting life. This is the phrase that always got me. But in chapter 5, he says there, for indeed in this house, he's talking about this tent, we're groaning, longing to be clothed from our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. And you've heard me say this before, but sometimes when there's long suffering, we, we almost see death as a welcome friend to end the suffering. And we speak of it in fond terms. That's Paul saying here, no, I, I don't want death. That would be to be found naked. That's what he's saying here. We groan even in this flesh. Not that we don't, not that we don't want to be unclothed. To be unclothed, be dead. We groan not wanting to be dead. Paul never got used to death. He never embraced death as a friend. I don't want to be unclothed and be found naked. But he goes on to say what he wants. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we do groan. Being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed but to be clothed. Listen to what he says here. Why? So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He's not, he's not welcoming death as a friend. He's looking, he's looking to life to overtake him. I don't want to die. I don't, I don't want to embrace death. I'm groaning because I want life to come in like a flood and overtake death and, and find me clothed in life not naked in death. So be careful about, I understand the sentiment, obviously, but be careful about making death sound something that's desirable or a friend, even for the greatest suffering. It's not. What's our friend is life. That's what overtakes death. That's what consumes death. That's what takes us from this life to the next without leaving us unclothed and naked in our trespasses and sin. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, as he finishes that section of Scripture, you know what he says, you can stand with me, but after establishing this, he says to these believers what I think we do for one another in, in dark times, whether they're in the world or whether it's in death. But he says to them, comfort you, comfort ye one another with these words. So this truth is how we comfort one another in darkness and in times of death and times of sorrow and the darkness we see in our world today. So, so remember those who are going through that immediately and even our church family as we've lost uh, two uh, here recently. Uh, if you count John Howard, he's known by many here, uh, three in the last couple of weeks, uh, people that we cared about and people that will leave a hole in our hearts and in our lives. And, and so... Speak these words to one another. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and grace. Lord, I thank you that these things are true. And Lord, it's no, it's no secret to you. And it's really not a secret to, one, to each of us, one another, that we fail uh, to live as though this is true like we ought. And so, Father, we confess those failures and acknowledge our hard-heartedness and our stubbornness. But, Father, we thank you that these things are true, that every believer in this room has reason and, and rightful hope. It's not just some vague optimism about what's ahead. Father, we know we have a sure word. We have a, very, we have a resurrected Christ. We have a spirit dwelling within our own hearts, confirming these truths to us. 
And so, Father, I pray that we could grieve, but that we might grieve in such a way as to confuse this world, and that there might be a, such a hope evident of, of, in us and, a, and an optimism that is unnatural to the world and that they might inquire as to the source of that hope. And, Father, help us to be faithful to share that that source is Christ himself. And I pray that he'll be our comfort that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.